Before we start, I wanted to let you know that there are some quite adult themes coming up, and this episode might not be suitable for younger listeners. Hello, I'm Graham Norton, and I'm delighted that you've decided to join us for this meeting of my book club. We've turned on the urn, unstacked the chairs, and ripped open the custard creams, so we're all ready for you, with plenty of books to talk about and people to talk about them. Starting with none other than the award-winning, in every sense, Sarah <laughs> Collins. Hello. And I believe you're still away from the shores that I'm currently inhabiting. I'm still in the tropics, Graham. And remember I told you I inherited a herd of cows? I know. Well, I've still got bovine problems, I'm afraid. So the neighbouring farmer, he didn't want them? Well, I mean, he might want them, but he'll want them for beef patties. The problem is try- trying to make sure these cows live out their long, natural lives. I suspect it's a problem I won't be able to solve. There's going to be a kind of Charlotte's Web-style sad ending to this tale, I believe. Yeah. I, I don't think that's the farming way. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, But good luck, good luck. Uh, All right, well, four legs good, two legs bad, on we go. Our book of the week this time is Andrea Lawler's Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl. The story of young shapeshifting Paul Polidorus and his voyages of discovery around America, gender, sex and mixtapes. Here to talk about it are four perfectly shaped, but probably not shifting, clubbers. Varshini, who chose the book for us, Gabby, Shivan, and Jeff. Hello to you all. Hello, Graham. Hello. And uh, it's a special welcome to Jeff. We haven't seen you this series yet. Yeah, glad to be back. <laughs> you sound very tired, Jeff. <laughs> I know. That didn't sound very glad. Yeah, no, you didn't sound <laughs> At least pretend. No, no, I am. I really am glad to be back. What have you been up to? What have I been up to? Oh, Lord. Okay, very briefly, summer holiday. Worst ever, okay? Oh, no. Two weeks in a 19th century house, which hadn't been cleaned since the 19th century. (laughs) Every time it rained, water came pouring into one of the bedrooms and down into the hall beneath. The electric and gas system was from the middle of the last century. Um, You couldn't actually use the cookers to actually create a meal. Every time you used the shower, the shower door fell off. Character uh, My son's train got struck by lightning. What? Oh, yeah, the uh, carbon monoxide alarm went off at three o'clock in the morning. And the person who owned the place said, oh, just take the batteries out. Yeah, apart from that, it was great. So you've booked for next year? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a keeper, yeah. <laughs> all right, we'll be back to speak to you all later to discover if you'd like Paul as your new best friends or if you think he should shape up and ship out after we've spoken to Andrea Lawler and after Sarah has given us her three of the best. And Sarah, I believe you're talking about physical activity of a different kind. So I was having a chat with a friend recently and we were talking about PE of all things. I don't know if this is something you can relate to, but um, PE class at school for me was actual proper, I'm going to need therapy to get over this for the rest of my life trauma. Oh yeah. So inspired by that conversation and my sort of lifelong sufferation as a sufferer of what I like to call PETSD, I thought, why not set myself a real challenge and see if I can ferret out a a slew of sports novels that will convince even people who hate sports. All right, well, we'll limber up in time to hear more about those. And here's someone else who wants to tell us about his track record. Garth Marenghi was born in the past, graduated from his local comprehensive, now bulldozed, with some O-levels in subjects. He taught for nine years at his local library reading group 
before becoming a full-time horror writer. He has published numerous novels of terror, too numerous to list, nay count, over 500 short stories, and has edited 30 anthologies of his own work, which have all received the Grand Master of Darkdom Award. The self-styled master of horror himself, Garth Marenghi, cunningly disguised as actor Matthew Holness, he has brought into terrifying existence his spine-chilling incarcerate. We'll be unlocking his experiences later on in Talking Books. Right, time for Paul takes the form of a mortal girl. Paul Polidorus is a fairly average student in Iowa City in the early 90s. He's young, he's gay, studies queer theory, and has a lesbian best friend. He's interested in music, hooking up, and trying to work out who he is. Nothing that unusual. Except that Paul has a special extra talent. He can change his body at will, from male to female, transforming build, skin, eyes, hair, whatever he fancies along the way. We follow Paul, who is sometimes Polly, through a kaleidoscope of experiences, travelling from Iowa City to Provincetown to San Francisco. There are house parties and grimy outdoor festivals, many sexual encounters that range from ten-minute standing hookups to months of domestic bliss, tedious jobs in bars and bookshops, the pain of losing old relationships, and the pleasure of finding new ones. He even meets someone who is just like him. The action plays out against a rich backdrop of the popular culture of the age, especially its music, but also the lurking spectre of AIDS while it was still a dead sentence. As part of that, we gradually discover the fate of Paul's first love, Tony Pinto. Also along the way, we're taken on side journeys into fairy tales and allegories about things like abandoned twins and a fisherman's mysterious wife who walks out of the house he's lovingly built for her. Andrea Lawler is a creative writing teacher and editor who lives in western Massachusetts. Paul takes the form of a mortal girl, came out in 2017, and is their first and only full-length novel. It's won prizes and had huge critical acclaim. Andrea wrote it over the course of 15 years. When we spoke, I wondered why the going was so slow. I knew I wanted to write fiction, but I didn't know how people made up plots. So I started retelling Greek myths and using them as a skeletal structure to kind of hang thinly veiled autobiographical fiction on. But in the process of that writing, I wrote what became the first scene of Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl. I wrote that probably in 2004 and then put it in a drawer. And then I was in a graduate creative writing program. And Samuel R. Delaney, who was my professor in that program, said, you know, you've got to turn in a story next week. And I didn't have anything. And I pulled that out and I thought, I'll just submit that. And Delaney was really enthusiastic. Um, and he said, I think you should follow Paul. So I just, of course, did whatever he said. And then that was the next 10 years. And actually, Varshini, who uh, chose uh, the book for the book club, she uh, particularly likes the, the fairy tales. W when did they enter the, the frame? Some of the old sort of false starts their sort of ghosts are in those fairy tales. Like when I was first starting to write these stories, sort of being dissatisfied with how they turned out because I was not wanting to go totally into myth retelling, I still felt that connection. And I put a lot of myself in Paul. 
I certainly turned to Greek mythology at a really early age with excitement and enthusiasm, as I think a lot of queer and trans kids do, because there's so many interesting models of transformation. And one of the things I really enjoyed about the book is how incredibly detailed it is. You know, your attention to detail in Iowa or P-Town or like Paul's finances, that so rarely comes up in a book. Was was that attention to detail an attempt to, to ground the fantasy or is that just the way you write? I, that's a great question. I think both. For me, the fantastic elements of the book do need to be grounded in a really gritty realism to feel magical. Um, I think about Gabriel Garcia Marquez. He said this great thing in one of those Art of Writing interviews. I think it was in the Paris Review. He said, if you say there are elephants flying in the sky, no one will believe you. But if you say there are 42 elephants flying in the sky, then you readers will believe it. And I think part of the project for me was to say, like, this is our world. This is consensus reality. And then also here are these characters who have these other kinds of abilities, but everything else is the same. Um, actually, Varshney is an interesting one. She was saying that she was once in the library and she saw Paul in the science fiction section. What do you make of that classification? How do you classify the book? Or is it like Paul and it's sort of not possible to classify? Well, I love it when the book is in lots of different sections. Like that's such a great compliment to have Paul in the science fiction section. And I'm really happy if Paul is in like a LGBTQ section, whatever the section is. You know, I, I like to be in all the sections. <laughs> and when you set it, it's, you know, it's very specific in the kind of late 80s, early 90s. Um, was that a choice? When I first started writing, I thought I was just writing about my recent past. And then over the course of some years, um, it became apparent to me that I had to grapple with the fact that that what my youth was historical fiction. <laughs> but also... Uh, the way that you use kind of the shadow of AIDS throughout the book, was that, again, a, a deliberate thing in the book? Or was that just your remembering of living through that time? Oh, deliberate. And my experience of coming of age in the sort of height of that pandemic. Graham, you know, left an indelible mark yeah. on all of us. Yeah. AIDS is an inherent part of the book. And um, I also wanted to have a light touch. I wanted an awareness to sort of dawn rather than be the sort of like bright light focus. And uh, very quickly, I just want to mention the music. Uh, talk to us about that that soundtrack and how important it is. Well, I just, you know, I like music <laughs> and uh, I listened to a lot of music while I was writing. But it felt important to me, not just as, um, you know, cultural reference, but in a way as an archive of all, all kinds of different kind of queer cultural production, music, books movies. In a lot of ways, I just wanted to put everything in there. So readers who were not from the 90s might have things to go research. And readers who are from the 90s will feel the comfort of recognition. I'm also intrigued that you're a teacher. It would have blown my mind if someone teaching me had written this book. <laughs> how, how do your students react to it? Partic particularly how sexual it is. I really tell them, don't read it till you graduate. <laughs> you know, like, yes, yeah, some of my students have read the book and it is, there's a lot of sexual content. I'm teaching college and I trust that they have good boundaries and know that I have good boundaries and also know that professors and writers are 
humans just like them who are messy and weird and have bodies. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably good for them, right? Yeah, no, I think great for them. Andrea, there's some questions we ask everybody. The first one is uh, about the book or the books uh, that turned you on to reading. What sort of age were you when you discovered books and reading? I mean, I was a big reader from the time I was little, but there's probably one book that really stands out to me as informing my whole life, which is the Dollar's Book of Greek Mythology. I think it came out in the 60s. It's this gorgeous, full-color, illustrated collection of stories from Greek mythology. Very queer, very fascinating, beautiful images, and then really lovely writing. And I was so obsessed with the book. I used to trace and copy the illustrations. I was really profoundly affected by this book in a lot of ways and reread it many times while I was writing Paul. The next book is one that you think not enough people know about, that there should be more fuss of. There are a couple of books I always think, oh, people should read this book. Uh, one of them is Tom Cho's collection of short stories, Look Who's Morphing. It's this really wild, fabulous sort of new narrative style where the narrator, Tom Cho, becomes Godzilla and Susie Quattro and like a gay leatherman. It's really just a wild ride and I wish more people would read it. And then the other book I think is, so I don't know if you've ever heard of Fran Ross who had this book Oreo that came out in the 70s. She was a comedy writer. I think she wrote for maybe Saturday Night Live, Richard Pryor. She was really weird and hilarious. And she wrote this kind of queer black Jewish retelling of Theseus where this young mixed race black Jewish lesbian queer person is in search of her white Jewish dad is so cool in terms of retelling Greek mythology. And I wish more people would read that. It sounds great. I'll check that out. And uh, finally, we just want to know the book that you love so much you wish you had written it yourself. Well, I'm like suffused with envy of other people's work all the time. So that's really hard. There's a book um, that came out last year. Every time I pick it up, I just sit down and reread the whole thing. And I wish I wrote it. It's a book by Henry Hoke, and it's called Open Throat. And it's about this like gay mountain lion living in Hollywood. And the first line is, I've never eaten a person, but today I might. The wonderful literary world of Andrea Lawler and their book, Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl. Uh, so, Sarah, this is a novel that is filled with physical activity, but virtually no sport at all. Uh, so you're going to redress the balance, I hear. Thankfully, I am here to stare us in the direction of ways to burn calories while keeping our clothes on. <laughs> uh, what have you got for us? First up is a debut novel that has leapt onto the Booker shortlist, despite being all about playing squash. And it's by Chetna Maru, who is a British Indian author, and the book is called Western Lane. It's a slim little book, weighing in at only 161 pages, if that's your cup of tea. And we follow an 11-year-old girl named Gopi uh, during the year after her mother dies. So she's completely adrift. But her father becomes obsessive about teaching her to play squash competitively, which, of course, because sports books are never really about the sports, is a way of coping with their grief and 
their utter inability to communicate with each other in any other way. And so, sure, we all know the well-trodden path of the sports story. So we're going to get training montages and the kind of big make-or-break tournament at the end. But what's really lovely here is that this novel is about, in a really beautiful way, the profound loneliness of grief and our kind of urge to find ways to give ourselves a reason to carry on and make life make sense after a loss like that. It's one of those books that's a short book, but a long read, if you know what I mean. You know, when the pace is so beautifully controlled and there's so much subtext that it feels bigger than it is. Yeah. Uh, That's this book. If you like your novels with real life pulsing from the page, then I would say this one is definitely for you. Yeah, there is something so moving about children dealing with grief. Yes. And children are so difficult to write, you know, to to sort of conjure up that authentic voice. And it's something that Maru does well here. And actually that one of the other novelists in my list today doesn't do as well. So we'll come back and give him a C when we get to him. Okay, uh, who is up next? It's actually a football novel, which is really surprising for me. It's called A Natural by Ross Raisin. This is one that I do feel sort of passionate and actually kind of defiant about recommending Graham because Raisin gave an interview around the time it was published, which I think was maybe six years ago, in which he said that publishers told him they didn't know how it would sell, given that football wouldn't appeal to women, who apparently are the only target market for fiction, and the gay storyline wouldn't appeal to football fans which is just so bloody short-sighted and typical of publishers. It makes me cross for so many reasons. But most of all, because like the best sports novels, the sport in it is actually just a big metaphor for life anyway. It's about the kind of slippery fortunes of a young footballer who is let go from a Premier League development squad and then has to try to survive at the second tier club he ends up at while dating the gruff groundskeeper in secret. There is a lot of football in it, but you can care so deeply about these characters, even if you don't care one bit about football. And I think it's partly because the book is so good at building this picture of the kind of unrelenting tension of a pro footballer's life. I found it a really fascinating insider look at that very human side of this massive sport. And your third choice. So this is the one we're going to give a C for not getting the child right. But it (laughs) is in all other ways a really good book. It's um, Gold by Chris Cleave. It's set during the London Olympics and published during the year leading up to it. And at its heart are two female cyclists who are intense rivals, but also the best of friends. One of them is this kind of ruthless, damaged loner who dominates the sport The other one has been completely eclipsed by her friend. She's a kind of gentler, kinder housewife who's had to sit the last two Olympics out because she's looking after her very ill young daughter who has leukemia. On the eve of the London Olympics, these two have to race each other for the only spot available on the British team. And it is, of course, a recipe for real nail-biting tension. But the book is also good about female friendship and rivalry. And it is especially good about 
taking a hard, honest look at motherhood and how, it, you know, in fact, it does strip your choices away from you. It does mean there's another creature in the world who always comes first. So highly recommended. But the child in question who is suffering from leukemia is written in a distractingly saccharine way, I would say. And, and for that, we're going to give a C, round it up to a B, not an A. Okay, almost gold. Silver. (laughs) Silver, I would say. Silver. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much, Sarah. And if you've been too busy strapping your phone to the cat to try and hit your step total, don't worry. Just visit the Amazon or Audible website, search for the Graham Norton Book Club, and you'll find our webpage with all of the books that get mentioned on the podcast. Let's shift on over to Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl. Joining us to do that are Dr. Gabby Humphreys, PhD. Still sounding good, Gabby. It still sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. English teacher and YouTuber Shivan Davis. Hello. Hi, Graham. How are you doing? Uh, Not too bad. Uh, Part-time librarian and full-time phone salesman Jeff Watson. Hello. Hello, Graham. Oh, wish you were here. (laughs) And junior doctor and library enthusiast Varshini Vijaykumar, who chose Paul for us. So, uh, Varshini, how did you come across this book? Uh, Why did you want the book club to read it? I first read this book in 2019. I read it when I was still at university. I saw the cover in a bookshop near where I lived and it had a face on the front and then the words tight, hot, smut (laughs) (laughs) next to the face. I have the same cover. Um, And I thought I needed to find out what that was about. So I was in my early 20s when I read this and I'm going to be 27 next week. And it's really funny, the change in the way that I've taken it. As someone who can reflect on what it was like to be that age and be looking for new things and not quite getting all the references. Uh, Jeff, you are uh, a bit older. Did it call back your youth? <laughs> in some ways, yeah. In yeah, because, I mean, basically, Paul, in many ways, is on the prowl. When you're young, free and single, that's what you do. My sort of youth was pre-HIV and all that sort of stuff, you know. I came in on the back of uh, hippydom, so it was very much about sort of free love and that sort of stuff. So I kind of, like, related to that. At the same time, I really ended up just feeling quite sorry for the character because really what he's trying to do is he's he's actually trying to get some sort of self-identity, some sort of feeling of self, and he's mediating all that through sexual relationships with other people. Uh, Gabby, did it leave you depressed for Paul at the end? This is an interesting one because I had a very similar experience to Vashnit. When I found out I was reading this book again... All I remembered was, that's the sex book. There's a lot of sex going on. And actually reading it a second time, I was surprised that there was so much sadness in there about this relationship breakup because of gender identity and the fear over a positive test for, for AIDS. And that surprised me because, you know, it's so full on in every other area. But sadness is definitely weaved throughout. And Shivan, we we keep framing you as an old person. You're not. You're young. You're vibrant. <laughs> you're in touch. How I love you, how this yeah. question is framed already. Go on. <laughs> well, no, because, because if people have never seen you, they will think you're about 90. 
But no, he's very young, ladies and gentlemen. Sheevan is very young. Young at heart. Young at heart. Did Paul's experiences and just this kind of portrait of youth, you know, it's quite a relatable thing, This a young person not really knowing uh, how to navigate the world. Did any of it uh, chime with you? Uh, not really, but it's not for the reasons stated. It's actually because I felt that Paul really lacked psychological depth as a character. So I didn't really relate to him because I felt that he was so kind of superficial and it, there was not much meaning in his life. So you're, what, you're reading a, a novel, quite a long novel, where the character doesn't have the depth required for you to kind of invest in his storyline, I suppose. And the interactions he has, the pleasure is always so focused on himself. Did you find no entertainment in just that's it? You're kind of following a dilettante as he kind of goes through his life. I honestly, and I sound really old now, Graham, but the sex scenes were genuinely pretty hardcore pornography. I mean, I found them really uncomfortably graphic. There were some scenes where it's just exploitative. Uh, Varshney, why do you think the sex is so graphic? Why do you think Andrew Lawler made it, you know, so out there? I think there's a couple of things. I think what they brought up in the interview that for the magical part of this book to land properly, you need to be really rooted in the world that it exists in. And I think the sex scenes being so graphic is really important because Paul moves through so many different queer subcultures through the course of this book in so many different forms. I think it's really important to have that level of detail because in a lot of like successful queer media in the last few years, I'm thinking of films like Call Me By Your Name, the camera kind of fades to black when the sex happens. And <laughs> I think there is importance in that being shown. To your point, Shivan, about them being quite self-centred, I understand what you mean about, you know, pleasure going both ways. I actually disagree, and I think that exists at points in the book. And it's interesting, Shivan, you use the word exploitative. What, who's being exploited in, in that it's fiction? Yeah, you're right. I meant as in, I felt I was reading a novel, as Jeff was saying, about a character who's kind of verging on being a sociopath. And there are some scenes in which it feels like he's just exploiting these people. And my criticism would be not that, because it's obviously a character, as you said. It's the fact that there isn't any exploration of his feelings after having done these things. Uh, did, did you not think that by the end there was an emotional journey there? Uh, you know, I, I think we're allowed to say the death of his first boyfriend and things. I felt like by the end there was a kind of a, a, a sadness. If I was going to praise the book, I found the way they wrote about uh, AIDS and it doesn't become the story. It's kind of, as you said in the interview, it's a shadow over the story. That was well done, but I'm, I'm 271 pages in by that point and I mm. wouldn't have carried on reading after mm. five. Wow. Ooh. It's a kind of strange turn at that point because until then the book has just been sex scenes after sex scenes sort of stitched together and then there is this really poignant, tender emotion which doesn't somehow seem to be grounded in a real person. Until that point, you get the idea of a character who does nothing but have sex. And so that is slightly flattening, I think. I think what happened to me with this novel is because Paul seems to be in a kind of stasis from the beginning, the change sort of seems to come from something that hasn't been grounded in reality. Although I do think the novel is very nicely grounded in reality in terms of the details of the era. Yeah. It seems to me more like a novel about the 90s than a novel about this person. I do disagree that AIDS comes up at a very late point in the book. I think there are mentions of it all the way through. Yes, just very subtle. Yeah. There's descriptions about like the community group and act up and the way that all these different people have mm -hmm. known each other is through activist groups mostly and you know mentions of very young men who are very ill before their time yeah uh, jeff what did you think about the other elements the the greek myths and the fairy tales what do you think they brought to the story or did they bring anything to the story 
they were like alternative versions of the creation of Paul, trying to sort of understand where Paul came from, what Paul was about. In that, they were actually quite satisfying. But at the end, there was no explanation. There was no understanding. And when he actually met up with uh, Robin, the other person, there was no explanation. There was no understanding. I think Robin at one point says, we're just like other people, only more so. Uh-huh. Mm. I, was, I thought that was a brilliant scene. I think that's kind of the point. Yeah, but it didn't go anywhere. That was it. What what I did really enjoy was actually the description of the various towns. Yeah. Yes. That's what I always look for in a book, because uh, apart from going to Holland, which I'm not going to talk about again, uh, apart from actually going to <laughs> Holland, I don't travel around much. So actually, for me, the only time I'm ever going to get to New York is in my head. It is interesting, though, because to me, it did feel like the, the places were fleshed out more than the characters. Yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. For me, I interpreted that. Yeah as the point, the point that these characters should almost be 2D because of intoxication, of mm. sex being really gratifying in this case and almost used as a, well, pleasure, but for, like, mental health reasoning and, you know, reinforcing character. It felt like time portals for each city. I, I don't know, did anyone else think that this book was quite funny? Yes. Like, just some of yes. the humour no, in it no. is very... I feel like Andrea Lola... <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. Fair enough. <laughs> I think Andrea Lawler really <laughs> writes a lot of this book with their tongue very firmly in their cheek. Uh-huh. You know, there's yes. a lot of jokes about like when he goes to the leather bar and he has a copy of Crime and Punishment mm-hmm. in his like back pocket and he's like, well, maybe people will think it's boring. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, it, it's interesting. I, I, someone was saying the other day, you know, not everything needs to be explained. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. I kind of enjoyed this book kind of just going with it. And it was sort yeah. of a, a magical romp. Uh-huh. Let's get to uh, scores on the doors. Uh, this is something we always do on the book club. We find out how likely someone is to recommend it to a friend uh, with a score out of 10. I'm going to start with you jeff okay yeah come on jeff <laughs> i'd like to give it a three or a four i'm actually going to give it more like a six oh because Ooh. it actually uses the expression collapsing onto him like a pistoning flesh blanket so that gets two points <laughs> that gets two points and also oh, i now know what the word frittage <laughs> means i had to google it <laughs> Was that the only thing you had to Google, Jeff? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've lived a varied life, Graham. I've lived a varied life. You really have. Uh, let's go to Gabby next. Uh, how likely would you be to recommend this book? I think I'd give it a seven. I recommend it, but not to everybody. My mum listens. Mum, don't read this one. <laughs> All right. Uh, Shivan, out of ten, how likely are you to recommend this book? This wouldn't be one I'd recommend... Up until page 271, I'd probably give it a zero. Okay. From page 271 <laughs> onwards, I'd probably give it a two. Wow. Sheevan is quickly turning into the Craig Revel Horwood of our book club. <laughs> Unfortunately, you chose this book. Are you still recommending it to people? Yeah. I think it's a book that's not going to be for everyone, but I think it will be for people who enjoy really getting into a scene and being able to disappear into a very well-written description of a time and place so i think for that reason i would give it an eight all right well thank you all for discussing paul takes the form of a mortal girl by andrew lawler uh, time to find out what we will be discussing next time and it is the turn of jeff what have you got for us i've got the wonderful terry pratchett he is my go-to author the author i have read most of over the years 
I've read all of his books multiple times. I'm not going for an early book. I'm actually going for going postal. I mean, I don't want to get into the discussion now, but why of all the books in the Terry Pratchett canon have you chosen going postal? He was at the height of his powers. And also the major character in there is just so absolutely delightful. Like Paul, he tells lies, (laughs) but... He does it for the good. Okay. Uh, That is Going Postal by Terry Pratchett. Of course, sadly, the great Terry Pratchett is no longer with us, but we are very excited that we're going to be talking to his longtime assistant and official biographer, Rob Wilkins, about the book Going Postal. So don't miss that next time. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for sharing your opinions and views, and I'll talk to you along the way. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. It's time for Talking Books, which is handy as this person has a book to talk about. With Nick's name rendered solidly in embossed gold lettering above the cover's central image, and the book's title displayed prominently below it in electric blue, The Portenta had proved to be one of Nick's most terrifying novels, and on the page it should have remained. Yet now, owing to Nick Steen's imagination having escaped from his mind, seeping out continuously from his head for several months following his accidentally opening a portal to another dimension, having once engaged in shady physical relations with a cursed typewriter, the book in question had suddenly sprung to life. Garth Marenghi, in his own head, is one of the world's greatest horror writers, whose main character, Nick Steen, is an author himself. Garth is, in fact, invented and played by actor Matthew Holness. He found Edinburgh Festival Perrier Award success, with the help of Alice Lowe and Richard Ayoade, for Garth Marenghi's Fright Night and Garth Marenghi's Netherhead in the early 2000s. Garth Marenghi's Dark Place hit UK TV screens in 2004. Now, Garth is back, this time with actual books. Last year saw the publication of an anthology horror novel, Garth Marenghi's Terror Tome. Now, the second book of the Terror Tome series is out, Incarcerat. It's the terrifying story of Nick Steen's abduction and imprisonment at Nulltech, a shadowy research facility where shadowy scientists attempt to nullify his escaping imagination. Garth has performed the audiobook, so it seemed only right to talk to Matthew about it, starting with a little bit more on Garth's origins. I'd done him as a character in a university review. I started off doing him as, a, like, you know, just two or three monologues in a tour show then. So, yes, he's probably been around since 1995. And it's one thing to kind of play a sort of slightly hack writer, yeah. but to then do the hack writing. <laughs> I mean, it's a kind of a natural progression, but when did you decide to do it? Well, hack is the right word, it has to be said. <laughs> These have been written at a phenomenally fast speed, <laughs> so they are... They are hack works. Um, But, I mean, I'm obsessed with these little mini westerns that used to be published in Australia, and they would publish eight a month. When they were done well, and and often they weren't because they were literally done in a week by these poor writers who have written over eight to 900 titles over their lifetimes, (laughs) Um, you get a really nice little condensed story that it that sort of plays out like a little mini film and it used to be a form that was done in the pulp days you know with pulp magazines in the 1930s and there would be lots of horror novellas so what you're getting in these there's sort of three mini novels in a fake novel format and you kind of say oh we wrote this video quickly but it strikes me that what you're doing is so difficult it reminds me in a way of Stella Gibbons where mm. you're pastiching something the whole thing is kind of a joke and yet you've got to get lots of jokes 
in it. Yeah. Um, how conscious are you of the internal jokes? With doing parody, and, and this applied as much to doing the TV show of Garth Marenghi as it did to these, is that if you can do a parody, but if you've only got enough material, it's really just a sketch. You know, that that's all it is. So you have to have a, a decent story behind it for it to last longer than the duration of a sketch. So that applied to this route. They had to be good stories as well as being parodies. So I suppose probably my writer brain is more interested in plotting and formatting the stories so that it works as a good little mini mini novel form, you know, little novella. And then I suppose the jokes feed... The jokes cover a lot of mistakes, let's be honest. You know, if I've written myself into several plot holes, which happens a lot, you know, I will try and fix them. But if time's pressing, it's just a case where Garth can go, well, <laughs> this is the plot hole, here's a quick fix, whatever. And that then works as a joke, you know, that, that you've basically solved it in the way he would solve it, which is a, you know, bit, bit of glue over it. <laughs> and when it comes to doing the audiobook of these, it strikes me there's a kind of a fine line, isn't there? Because Garth's got to be quite good at reading them. He's fine doing himself, but doing other voices, you would kind of think, well, he'd be awful at this and he would just do every voice the same. That's not really going to work in an audiobook. So my answer to that is that Garth is channeling spirits of the deceased when he's in the audio recording. So he is channeling some spirit that talks through him, which allows him to sort of go into different accents and things. But you've got to think, you know, if someone's listening to an audiobook, they want to, I guess they want to feel like it's a, a version of the show, I suppose, you know, a kind of dark place style thing. So you've kind of got to give other the character yeah. performances as well as Garth. Um, and Garth is, you know, is either Garth being obnoxious or he's Garth acting and hamming it. So it's it's a fine line between, you know, which appalling performance style is he doing at the moment? <laughs> and how hard is it to maintain it in such a kind of long form? Because you're in that studio for hours. It's really awful because I got the giggles every so often, and which is really bad if it's just you with something you've written. If you're getting the giggles, you, you know, you, you just think, am I, they're really indulging me at the moment the poor engineer is but it is it is a ridiculous situation sort of sitting in a room doing silly voices and and reading very bad prose so it kind of yeah it does make me laugh just the the absurdity of it all and as television kind of prepared you for this in a way because that idea of doing comedy without an audience i think so yeah and and also i think doing this particular character has always been that because when we did our stage shows, Richard Iwadi, myself and Alice Lowe, we would often be playing to audiences that didn't get it. And that was always, we'd always play it for real. There was nothing funnier than doing a performance that only two people turn up to, which is exactly what would have happened if this character did do it for real. So that was always, for me, that was, if it's going badly, that's kind of funny. So that never bothered me about trying to impress an audience in that sense, because if they really hated it, that was all grist to the mill. That was like, yes, this feels right now because these people are, are loathing this guy. And this is, you know, I, I really enjoyed uh, Incarcerate, but it, the horror isn't a genre that I, I would normally go to. Can a book frighten you, Matthew, or do you just admire it? Do you kind of think, oh, this is clever? I think the more you read of any genre or any type of thing that you like, like anything, it's if you work in TV for ages, you start to enjoy TV less. You just sort of look at the mechanics of it. So I think that is true, yeah. I suppose, because I've read so many genre writers. I've always been aware of structure and plot forms and how they do certain things. So, yes, I think it is a hard barrier to overcome that. Having said that, I can often be surprised 
surprised by something very, very frightening. And it's usually something that is throwing away all those kind of genre conventions and just comes and you don't you initially don't really know why you're frightened. I think that's how it works when it can scare you where you don't even see the, the how it's happened until after the event. All right, well, let's talk more about you as a reader. Some of the questions we ask everybody, a book that you remember kind of opening up the world of books to you, was it always kind of genre fiction for you? The book that did this for me was one of the fighting fantasy game books that were put out by Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone. These were the choose your own adventure books. And I picked up House of Hell. But the thing about those books is that they completely opened up your imagination, I suppose. The second book we look for, and I'm not sure where you'll go with this, a book that you find comfort in. Well, I always find comfort, and it, it is a very old-fashioned, and it's not particularly a, a politically correct book these days, is King Solomon's Minds, H. Ryder Haggard. It doesn't matter how many times I, I never get bored of it, and it always is just fills me with a sense of excitement and adventure about, you know, undiscovered lands. There's a mystery, there's a treasure map. It's, it's real proper boys own adventure fiction and the final book we want to know about matthew is the one that you have gifted the most or recommended the most well you have to be rather careful about recommending it because it's rather unsavory it's called the cockfighter by charles wilford it is a noir novel written i think in the early 1960s there's so many things wrong with it morally speaking however this it is a great character study because it is a man who takes a vow of silence and he won't talk to anyone until he's won everything back and won the cockfighting champion of the year they're very unpleasant characters they're very unpleasant stories but they're very truthful you know these people do exist it's very much an acquired taste but if you like that kind of crime noir fiction and you haven't read any charles wilford i do think he is one of the greatest writers ever and i think the cockfighter was like a reading experience i've never had anywhere else so i always recommend it but i know that most people go ah oh, that's what it's about thanks i'll uh, yeah maybe maybe <laughs> in fact no no we won't be touching that Matthew Holness talking us through the new magnum opus of horror writer extraordinaire Garth Marenghi and his own favourite titles. It is nearly time for us to shift our shapes out of here, but before we do, someone has taken the form of audiobook insider and chart maven Holly Newson. It is, in fact, Audiobook Insider and Chart Maven Holly Newson, all ready to tell us who and what is sliding up and down the Amazon and Audible charts. Holly, uh, what is the big news this time? Yeah, well, high on the history chart and the overall chart and most sold non-fiction chart in both audiobook and print, we have a new book from David Mitchell. That's TB David Mitchell, not fiction author David Mitchell. Gotcha. It's called Unruly, and it's a history of England's kings and queens. Uh, This is giving me, I'll get that for dad for Christmas type vibes. So I think it's right as an autumn release. Though the ratings on this are mixed. So far, it's Marmite. You either love it or you hate it. I mean, he was on my television show talking about it. Mm. What he's done is so clever because it is a, a serious, credible history book, but also very, very funny at the same time. I suppose what it most is is very him. Yes. Uh, all right. Uh, what's our dark horse coming up on the inside? Well, One to Watch is on pre-order and not coming out until March 2024. It's RuPaul's memoir, The House of Hidden Meanings. Oh, yeah. This burst onto the charts on the overall bestsellers, the biographies chart, and took the top spot on the LGBTQ plus biography chart. Um, it's being described as RuPaul totally out of drag, an intimate and detailed look 
at his life. Um, does being a judge on RuPaul's Drag Race UK get you an early read of this one, Graham? I was wondering if it would. I, he might, you know, in the past, he has given me some of his books as gifts. So maybe he always claims he doesn't remember anything. So I don't know what's <laughs> going to be in this book. <laughs> Apparently it's detailed. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Uh, and what's our final chart thought today? Well, finally, I wanted to mention that on the science fiction and fantasy chart, we have a really big hitter in that genre, Rebecca Yaros. Her fantasy romance book, Fourth Wing came out only in May 2023, but already has over 80,000 ratings on wow. Amazon. Yeah, it's still in the science fiction and fantasy chart, but ahead of it is her new book, second in the same series, Iron Flame. This is set in Basquiat War College, which I tell you because I feel like it already gives you a sense of the world. And Stylist Magazine described book one in the series as The Hunger Games meets Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. I mean, I presume they meant in content, not sales, but the sales are pretty great. Well, uh, which also means I won't be adding to the sales figures. However, I'm sure there are plenty of other people who will. Thank you so much, Holly. Don't forget, you can find details of all the books we talk about on our webpage. Just search for the Graham Norton Book Club on Amazon or Audible and all the information you need will be right there. Our book clubbers have gone off to help Jeff unleash his escaping imagination on the owner of his holiday home. So it just remains for me to thank the always imaginative Sarah Collins for her excellent form throughout our meeting. Thank you so much. I feel like I should be making some kind of bad joke about us going into extra time or something. I just worry that a cow is going to be delivered to my house. <laughs> you read my mind. Please don't. Uh, just to remind you that this series of the Graham Norton Book Club podcast is available on Audible or wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us a follow and hey... Leave us a rating and a review if you've a mind. Also, don't forget to join us next time when our book is Terry Pratchett's Going Postal. And Derry Girls of Bridgerton star Nicola Coughlin will reveal her audiobook life. Till then, happy reading and listening, and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.